Well, welcome. Um, my name is Paul, Paul Reed. I'm one of the product managers in our AWS Boston office. And I'm here with um, Prash, one of my colleagues in Boston, and Lance, one of our customers, to talk to you about files in AWS. So for anybody who's been to any of our storage sessions at reInvent uh, so far, you may have seen this slide. It's sort of our portfolio slide showing you the breadth of our storage services and some of the solutions we have. So we break storage down into three segments, block, file, and object. We obviously have EBS, EFS, S3, and Glacier that fill those. Today we're going to talk about EFS. We're going to talk about storage gateway. We're going to talk about a new feature of EFS, file sync, which all help you uh, perform files and store files within AWS. So as most of you are aware, file storage has been around for a while. It's very common. It's the thing that most people think of as storage. Um, why do we like it? We like it because it has an interface that's common. It has interfaces that have been around for years, and there are arguably millions, if not billions, of applications that talk to file systems and talk to files in order to store and retrieve data. It has some interesting semantics that are different to block and object store. It has strong consistency. It has things like locking. It has a hierarchical data structure in directories and folders. And it has a permissioning model that many applications have come to rely on. Many OSs rely on these. Many organizations rely on them for data protection, access control, and those sorts of things. So why is file storage so hard if it's so prevalent? So it's hard for administrators. You've got to estimate demand, buy storage, procure the hardware, build infrastructure, set things up, manage a lot of infrastructure. And once you get it set up, you've got to then do ongoing monitoring. You have to forecast demand, buy more hardware, add more, add more infrastructure into your environment that has to be managed, secured, and controlled. It's quite inflexible in today's world. So today, in this session, we're going to talk about two things, and then we're going to let Lance come up and talk about how he's using uh, AWS storage services. First, we're going to talk about hybrid use cases for files, so storage in AWS that's accessed from your premises, from your data center, backed by AWS storage. We're going to talk about EFS, file storage in the cloud, for in-cloud use. And then, as I say, Lance is going to come up from Celgene and talk about how he's using some of these services in his environment um, and some of the things he's doing with AWS file services. So a very common use case that most people are used to, they use us, see Microsoft file systems. They read and write from them and they don't really think about it. It's shared drives, it's S drives, or um, those sorts of things. And for anybody that's in this space on the administrative side, you've deployed a lot of infrastructure in order to support these users over the years. You've built it up. As storage has run out, you've bought yet another storage array, or you've bought yet another server to manage the infrastructure needed to support these Microsoft Windows users. So what's the alternative from AWS? And this, I've heard about this storage gateway thing. How does that play into this? So storage gateway provides a way of deploying win Microsoft Windows file services without having so much infrastructure. We do that through our volume gateway, our iSCSI block storage offering. So what storage gateway volumes provide is the ability to have block storage backed by S3 available as an iSCSI LAN to your upstream application server, your Windows server in this case. The gateway is deployed on premises in your environment as a VM. We support VMware and Microsoft Hyper-V. 
it performs both the protocol transformation from iSCSI into what's needed to get the data into S3, compresses data, performs some data transfer optimization, and allows surfacing up to 32, 32 terabyte LAN, so about a petabyte per gateway. You can obviously deploy more than one gateway if you have a need for more than a petabyte of storage. And we allow a thin and a thick provisioning model, so you don't need a petabyte of storage on-prem to have access to a petabyte of storage in the cloud. You can deploy as little as a couple of hundred gigabytes of storage on-premises, giving you access to a petabyte of storage in the cloud. Storage gateway volumes integrate with EBS, so we allow you to create snapshots of your on-premises volumes that become first-class EBS snapshots that you can create an EBS volume from and attach to an EC2 instance in cloud. Or you can use the same snapshots to restore data or bring data back to your on-premises environment via storage gateway as well. How does this fit into a Windows environment? So in a Windows world, you'd connect your Windows server to Storage Gateway. Storage Gateway would present LUNs to your uh, Windows server. Your users would connect to your Windows server as they do today. Many customers who have adopted this model have slid Storage Gateway in entirely transparently to their users. They've moved from a fully provisioned on-premises model and replaced existing SAN storage on-prem with cloud storage, and their users knew nothing about it. In this mode, Storage Gateway moves the data into S3, and as I mentioned earlier, we allow you to create EBS snapshots. We have some customers that use the fact that those EBS snapshots can be surfaced to an EC2 instance to do file restores in cloud or to do disaster recovery in cloud by connecting those EBS volumes created from the snapshot of their on-premises volume to an EC2 instance running Windows. Same volume just moves between their data center and the cloud. Some of our customers have built quite elaborate, quite complex architectures with this, using some of the capabilities that Microsoft Windows Server provides with things like DFS. In this example, um, we have a customer, a large uh, multinational media company, who in their primary data center on the West Coast, they have uh, a cluster of Microsoft servers connected to a pair of storage gateways. They're running DFS across those. <clears throat> that moves the data into uh, the US West uh, One region. They then use DFSDR to mirror that data over to an in-cloud Windows instance running on the East Coast, which is also attached to an EC2-based storage gateway, providing them a third copy of those volumes on the East Coast. So they have three copies of the data stored several thousand miles apart, giving them both local redundancy and local failover through things like DFS and geographic redundancy of storage. Another mode that many of you might have heard is File Gateway. We launched that last year at reInvent. With File Gateway, we have customers doing a number of different things. One is just plain using uh, S3 as storage, as file storage. Another is using File Gateway to distribute content around multiple branch offices. And the third is using it as a way of getting data into S3 for upstream processing with some of our uh, native S uh, AWS uh, data analytics tools that work against S3 storage. Similar to Volume Gateway, Storage Gateway deploys as a VM into your data center. Um, it provides an NFS mount point that, that stores files as objects in your S3 bucket. So it's a one-to-one -one mapping between files and objects. Metadata for the file system is stored in S3, so the, it's entirely durably stored with the data itself. And we give you full control over how you access the data from an NFS side and how you store the data in S3. So just to go over some of those again, is this one-to-one -one mapping. Now, what this is really 
really useful for is you have the same namespace for your file-based applications as you do for your object-based applications. Secondly, because we're storing files as objects one-to-one, -one, no obfuscation of the data, you see a namespace in S3 that is natively accessible to the S3 capabilities. So you could write a lifecycle policy based on your file namespace to move objects down to either standard and frequent access or to Glacier. Or you could tag objects based on um, the namespace. So because the namespace is common to you, you can use all of the S3 capabilities natively. Again, I'll show you some examples of what customers are doing with this in, in uh, future slides. We give you full control over how you access the data, lots of different NFS options surfaced on a per bucket basis, and lots of options for how you want your data stored in S3, from giving you individual IAM control over access to each bucket, um, things like storage class management, encryption with KMS, and something we launched last week, which is the ability to, to put guest MIME types onto objects if you're then taking those objects and potentially distributing them through CloudFront, because they're web assets that you want to expose on, on uh, a website. Inside the gateway, you know, how do we provide a file system on top of S3 when it's potentially uh, down a, a thin network connection from your data center? We, ha we have both a data cache and a metadata cache. The metadata cache gives you that quick responsiveness to file system operations um, that you'd expect with a file system. So your applications, again, think they're working with a native file system even though it's really stored off in S3. Um, if you make changes to your S3 bucket outside of the gateway, you can tell the gateway to just validate its cache against S3 by calling a refresh cache API. And a new feature that we launched last week that, uh, again, helps some of these automated workloads in cloud is the ability to, to uh, trigger uh, CloudWatch events when objects are made available in S3. So the gateway provides a cache, so it provides a, uh, when you write data to it, the, the, the write is act by the gateway and then asynchronously uploaded to S3. But if you want have a, an in-cloud workload that needs to know that data is there, because it's, it's gonna process it, you wanna know when the data arrives. So we emit a CloudWatch event and that you can then hook an application, Lambda function or, or directly to your application. So how do those features help us? So again, here's a customer who has their primary headquarters in Los Angeles, and they want to use File Gateway to do content distribution where all of their content is durably stored in S3. So in this instance, they have a File Gateway in their uh, headquarters in LA that uploads data into uh, S3. They have two regional offices that are looking at the same bucket. They have a read-only view of that um, bucket through, again, a File Gateway. So all of their users think of uh, their data through a file-based interface. When they write data to the gateway, it starts to get uploaded automatically to S3. They then ask to receive an upload notification. That upload notification, once the data is uploaded, gets sent via CloudWatch. They then hook that CloudWatch event through a very simple Lambda function to call refresh cache, which makes those files that they wrote in LA available to their branch offices in New York and Miami. We have another company that's doing something very similar. In this case, this is a call center application where they have a global call center um, that runs out of uh, LA and Sydney to give them 24-7 call center. And in this instance, they want call logs from a call made in LA to be available to their operators down in their Sydney office. And as I mentioned, the gateway's just putting files into S3 as objects. So you can enable cross-region replication on that bucket to replicate that all those objects over to another bucket down in Sydney. And again, they've now got this interesting geographic separation of that data. And there they have another gateway that's giving them access to that second bucket, 
which gives them a, a view of that bucket to the call center application down in Sydney. We heard a lot this morning in the keynote about machine learning and data analytics. And again, because the file gateway is just providing you a way of getting data into S3, so files and objects, or mapping from files to objects, all of the capabilities, all the analytic capabilities, things like Athena, Lambda, recognition, can act upon those objects in, in S3. And with things like the CloudWatch events and Refresh Cache API, you can start to automate workflows that span between your file-based applications and your object-based analysis. The other thing that we have a lot of customers doing is they say, well, I have a lot of data that I want to put in S3, but I don't have enough bandwidth to move it. So we have um, one of our customers, Halliburton, is using Snowball to load data into S3. So they're moving objects using the file interface to write files to S3, which then get put into their S3 bucket. And they're then using the file gateway to provide online access to that data. So they have the data, they want to move it in S3, but they don't want to lose access to it as files. Now the interesting thing here is that both File Gateway and Snowball Edge use the same metadata format for storing files. So the files that they wrote to the Snowball with all of their metadata land in S3 and then are made available back to them through File Gateway with all of the same file system metadata, the same file namespace and all of the usual POSIX permissions that you'd expect. So this is some of the things we're doing in the hybrid space using File Gateway and Volume Gateway to provide you online access to AWS storage. I'm going to hand over to Prash, who's going to um, talk about EFS and how in-cloud workloads can use files. Thanks, Bob. So let's talk about um, how you can run uh, in-cloud workloads uh, with uh, file storage using the Amazon Elastic file system. So first, before we talk about EFS itself, um, let's talk about how you would do file storage yourself um, prior to EFS. So you would actually set up file servers to um, run your NFS file serving. You would attach a bunch of storage volumes to actually store the underlying file data. And then um, you might want uh, multi-AZ availability and durability, so you might actually set up multiple file servers across multiple availability zones and establish replication across those two uh, file servers. And then you might um, also have to manage failover between them and um, set up appropriate mounts across all of your clients. So uh, basically, to summarize, it's a huge pain to actually set up, maintain, manage your own file storage. So to address uh, this uh, you know, whole set of pain points around um, setting up and managing, provisioning storage based on uh, your capacity expectations, and then needing to reprovision based on storage changes and things like that. Um, we actually uh, launched Amazon EFS about a year and a half back. And um, what Amazon EFS is, is a fully managed uh, file service that provides you a way to uh, create file systems in a very simple way, in a matter of uh, minutes and then to basically not have to worry about any of the file-serving infrastructure itself. Um, all of the file-serving infrastructure is fully managed by the service. Uh, everything from setup and uh, management to um, actually taking care of the capacity itself. Your capacity actually grows elastically. So um, you don't need to worry about provisioning a certain amount of storage capacity up front. All you do is um, you know, start using your applications and add data, modify data, delete data as uh, the applications proceed. And um, the, the storage itself elastically grows and shrinks as your usage changes. 
Um, and Amazon EFS is also built uh, to be scalable uh, in the sense that as your um, storage uh, scales up, your performance also scales up. Uh, so you don't need to worry about, you know, will I get the appropriate performance depending on the amount of storage capacity I have. Um, and it's also scalable in the sense that it's shareable across not just a few clients, but across up to thousands of client instances of EC2 instances. Um, and another aspect of the simplicity of EFS itself is um, it exports the file storage as uh, an NFS accessible file system. So you can actually use the standard NFS protocol. Um, uh, you can basically use any Linux EC2 instance that uh, has NFS clients installed, which is uh, uh, default in all modern Linux distributions. And you get to uh, use your file system in a very simple way. And then, of course, um, Amazon EFS is built to be highly available and durable. Um, and the data itself is redundantly stored across multiple availability zones. And uh, you don't need to worry about making sure that uh, you are protected against uh, you know, component failures, um, failovers, and things like that. So in essence, it provides you a very simple, um, elastic, and scalable uh, file system that you just create in a matter of minutes and use from your applications and not have to worry about any of the management complexities. Um, EFS is designed for a wide spectrum of um, application needs. Uh, so it really targets uh, the workloads across an entire spectrum, starting from uh, you know, low latency and serial I.O. Uh, intensive applications on uh, one side, things like uh, developer tooling, home directories, container storage, um, all the way up on the other end to scale out jobs that require very high levels of throughput and parallel uh, IOPS and so on. Um, uh, you know, workloads like uh, big data and analytics, media and entertainment workflows, and so on. And then in the middle, there's all kinds of applications, everything from web serving and content management to enterprise workloads and database backups and messaging and so on. So it really is um, uh, targeted at a very wide variety of applications, no matter what the specific performance needs are. Um, and these are some examples of um, EFS customers uh, across this entire variety of uh, use case uh, scenarios that are using EFS today. Um, so in terms of the security model itself, uh, EFS actually provides multiple layers of uh, security. So you can actually control the network traffic that goes uh, back and forth between your EC2 instances that are uh, uh, mounting uh, uh, the file system itself and, and the actual file system using VPC security groups and network ACLs. Um, you can actually control individual file and directory level access using POSIX permissions, which is what uh, file workloads in general are used to from uh, decades, as Paul mentioned. And then uh, you can control administrative access to your file system, uh, the API access to your file system using AWS IAM, um, and you can do both resource level and um, uh, action level permissions. And then you can also, uh, recently we uh, um, launched support for encryption of data at rest. So you can actually use uh, keys managed in AWS um, KMS to encrypt all of your data at rest. And again, here the uh, model is very simple. You don't need to worry about actually encrypting and decrypting uh, the data. You just set it all up, and um, uh, the service itself takes care of all of the encryption in the back end. Um, so let's talk about uh, how you can actually uh, use Amazon EFS and how it looks to your clients. So. Um, 
the EFS file system itself uh, is a you know, hierarchical directory structure um, as you would use any file system. And then that is uh, presented as a set of mount targets, which are basically endpoints in uh, each of your availability zones within a given VPC that you have configured. Um, and then uh, there's a common DNS name that appropriately maps to uh, a mount target depending on which AZ you're uh, using the DNS name from. And all you need to do is from your NFS clients, from your EC2 instances themselves, you just issue a simple mount command as you would any NFS file system. Um, and uh, you, know, you, you, you uh, point the mount command at that DNS name. And once the file system itself is mounted, your applications get to use the files and directories um, as if they're using any other files and directories. So as I mentioned, it's designed for a wide variety of applications and workloads. Um, the way uh, it enables you to use the same service across uh, a wide uh, range of workloads is basically uh, by providing two performance modes. Uh, we provide general purpose performance mode and the max IO performance mode. The general purpose performance mode is the default one, and that's really what we recommend for the vast majority of applications out there, uh, applications that are latency sensitive um, and just general purpose in uh, nature. And then the advantage there is you actually get the lowest latencies uh, for individual file operations. But then uh, the trade-off there is there's a limit of up to 7,000 operations per second that you can uh, perform per file system. Um, and this really is the best choice for most workloads because we have found that most customers uh, find this to be the happy spot. And then um, we also provide another performance mode called the Max IO performance mode in which you can actually achieve larger scale uh, of throughput and IOPS and you uh, use this generally for large scale uh, analytics applications, data heavy applications and so on. And here you actually get virtually unlimited ability to scale out throughput of IOPS. There's no uh, you know, specified limit um, as in the other case uh, with the trade-off of slightly higher per operation latencies, uh, which usually does not matter for you know, massively parallel applications that uh, tend to use this performance mode. Um, in terms of the data uh, storage itself, EFS actually uh, distributes the data across uh, an unconstrained number of servers across multiple availability zones. Um, and this design really helps avoid the bottlenecks that are um, a result of traditional file server designs. And it enables very high levels of aggregate IOPS and throughput because of this design of unconstrained number of servers. And then the, the distribution of the data across multiple availability zones is also what enables the high availability and durability that EFS is able to offer. So an implication of uh, this highly distributed data storage design is that uh, the per operation latency uh, impacts your, uh, um, the, the IO size leading to the throughput. So basically, the smaller the IO size, uh, the smaller the throughput, and the higher the IO size, the higher the throughput you can achieve um, at the same IOPS level, essentially. And so um, as uh, far as possible, uh, you know, whenever possible with, within your application scenarios, we recommend that you actually uh, use higher IO sizes for your applications. In order to take advantage of the distributed architecture itself, another thing we'd recommend is that you parallelize as uh, far as possible. So if there's ability for you to increase the number of threads, uh, maybe even scale out in terms of the number of instances from which you're running your workloads and so on, you can actually achieve um, higher level of uh, you know, scale in terms of IOPS and throughput. 
So let's talk about uh, the economics itself. Um, there's actually no minimum commitments or upfront fees, as I mentioned. Uh, there's no need to provision uh, a given amount of storage in advance. And there's no other fees other than the storage uh, dimension itself. There's no other billing dimensions. Um, and the prices um, we share here for the various regions that EFS is available in. Um, and just to uh, dive in a little more into the economics itself, if you were to go back to the very first slide I showed you about the do-it-yourself file storage, uh, you would have to worry about uh, paying for the EC2 instances themselves that are running the file servers. You would have to worry about paying for the EBS volumes that are attached to the servers themselves. And then you would have to um, also worry about the costs regarding the inter-AZ data transfer because you are actually establishing replication across multiple availability zones. And then uh, with EFS, here we show you an example of, um, you know, suppose you're storing a 500 gigabyte file system, uh, you can actually see that EFS is uh, about 70% less than the do-it-yourself solution. Uh, if, you know, once you add up the storage costs themselves, the compute costs, and the inter-AZ data transfer costs, you see that there's a significant, um, you know, cost savings in terms of uh, using EFS. Um, and finally, I'd like to share some uh, best practices with you um, uh, in terms of Amazon EFS usage. So we recommend that you test, test, test your application uh, using actual workflows uh, before you actually take them into production uh, because you, uh, for example, you would want to uh, select the appropriate performance mode. Um, and just to recap, we recommend general purpose mode for the lowest latency and max IO for scale out. Um, we recommend that you use uh, a, a, you know, a more recent Linux kernel version, Linux kernel 4.0 on newer, and that you mount via NFS version 4.1. EFS supports both NFS versions 4.0 and 4.1, but we recommend the use of version 4.1 for optimized performance. And then um, to optimize, as I said, we uh, recommend that you look for opportunities to aggregate the I.O. and increase I.O. size, uh, perform asynchronous operations when possible, parallelize as far as possible, and then use client-side caching uh, whenever possible within your application scenario. And then um, there's a, an EFS bursting model um, that I didn't go into here, but uh, we uh, you know, shared the details of that more in the documentation. And in general, uh, we recommend that you uh, monitor your burst credit balance and things like that using the CloudWatch metrics that EFS emits. Um, uh, so I would like to pass it back to Paul to talk about the EFS file sync that was released recently. Very awesome service, and as Prash showed, the TCO is is um, significantly better than rolling your own, and a lot of those headaches of managing your own file system just go away. So, how do you get on board? And one of the things that we've seen since customers since we launched EFS is that customers want to run their file-based applications in EC2, they want to use EFS, but they've struggled to get their data into EFS. So, traditional Linux-based copy tools, they don't have parallelism. Let's flip to this. We don't. They don't have parallelism. They don't necessarily traverse modern networks from your corporate network into AWS easily. Um, you have to suffer things like latency and packet loss. You have to manage, manage and monitor the transfer to move a whole file system into EFS, make sure you don't lose any data, make sure the data copies over before you can uh, decommission the data on-prem and fire up your application in cloud. So it's not simple to move a file system from one place to another. So in order to help customers uh, move to uh, EFS, We've created a new feature of EFS called EFS File Sync, which creates a simple and fast way of moving your data from an existing file system into EFS. 
So we do this uh, by uh, deploying an agent on-prem that accesses your local file system. It outbounds connects over port 443, so it's secured as soon as it leaves your data center, all the way into AWS and writes into uh, your EFS file system. It's about five times faster than using standard Linux copy tools. If you go back to one of Prash's slide, he said parallelize, parallelize, parallelize. Can't say that quickly three times. Um, and so we use massive parallelization to move data as quickly as we can over the network into your, uh, into your VPC and into your EFS file system. We take care of prov provisioning all of the infrastructure to traverse networks from your data center into EFS, straight into your VPC. The three main use cases that we're targeting for this. One is obviously on-prem migration into AWS, into EFS. The other is we have a number of customers, as Prash mentioned, that have built their own shared file systems inside EFS, inside AWS rather, and want to move to EFS to get rid of some of those management and provisioning headaches, even in the cloud. So we provide a way of moving that data out of your roll your own in-cloud file system into EFS. And the last use case that we're targeting here is customers who have data in one EFS file system in one region, and maybe they want to consolidate into another region. So we even support EFS to EFS cross-region. I'm going to hand over now to uh, Lance Smith from Celgene, who uh, is going to talk about how some of our customers are using some of these services, EFS and Storage Gateway, in the wild. Lance. Thank you, Paul. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Lance Smith. I'm from Celgene. Um, real quick, what I'm going to talk about today, quickly about our, our company, our cloud journey, some of our use cases that we use EFS for, and then uh, some of our hybrid workloads that we've been using uh, Amazon Gateway. Uh, Celgene, we're a pharmaceutical company specializing in cancer and immunology. Uh, new novel discoveries, you know, we are truly trying to save the world here. Uh, we cover our R&D, manufacturing, sales, uh, we have about 7,000 people in 70 sites around the world, and that has a huge impact on how we architect our applications, especially running in the cloud. Our CMDB has about 800 applications, 600 of which we deem you know, critical. Uh, we are a cot shop. 500 of those have been purchased off the shelf, and about 100 are in-house. And when we try to migrate COTS applications, it does have a challenge for us in that we cannot modify these applications. <clears throat> Our journey, uh, we started in two, uh, AWS around two, 2014, and like many companies, we started very simply, EC2 and S3, kind of started dabbling, um, got a little bit more comfortable, went RDS, and 2015, R&D became very, very comfortable, and they had an enormous demand for massive performance of massive files. We went all in, multiple direct connects, uh, three 10 gig direct connects, networking all around the world, and just because of that networking now, uh, our development teams are starting to go much more into serverless design. So we're now doing um, EMR and workspaces, uh, doing much more Lambda, and now we're starting to work with IoT, primarily because of our direct connect. And interesting enough, our use of storage is allowing us to migrate more and more uh, into Amazon because of the storage features of AWS. <clears throat> we have three major categories, at least for this discussion, about the applications that we put in the cloud. Uh, our genomics HPC workloads. Uh, these are uh, big I.O., petabyte-scale workloads. Uh, when we do the number crunching, we launch about at least 5,000 instances. And that's anywhere between 75,000 and 150,000 cores to process the data. Uh, we also have chemistry-type jobs, uh, much smaller I.O., so we often use uh, GP, uh, general purpose EFS for these workloads. Um, a few gigabytes per file can translate still into 
tens of thousands of core hours for each individual job. Another category, we have collaborations with universities and hospitals. And this is, does include some of the uh, genomics and chemistry type workloads. However, because of the, the data, the intellectual property, and allowing outside entities with our data, we do put these in a separate category. We also have some corporate workloads, email, uh, file print, et cetera, uh, you know, um, salesforce.com, and you know, those are what we call corporate. And legacy applications, uh, another 500 applications. We're working with Amazon Pro Services right now to assess each individual application so we can start migrating uh, as soon as maybe next year. Uh, for the rest of this talk, I'm just gonna talk about those top three, and that's really the, the, the really meat for the complicated uh, migrations that we've been doing. So for our legacy applications, you know, we have 500 cost applications. We really wanna move them to the cloud, but we cannot modify them. Um, and it puts huge challenges on us, but there are some things that we really care about uh, that are truly important to us. Um, the most important thing is data protection. You know, we are working on cures for cancer. Uh, intellectual property is key. We are often willing to give up some availability for additional durability. Um, so that, what that means is you know, we can have a little bit of downtime, but we cannot lose that data. Uh, from file systems, we also care about you know, how much does it take to maintain. We are very a very lean shop. Anything that we can do to minimize effort on part of IT, we'll definitely do. Uh, we're also a frugal company. Um, you know, if we can uh, get the performance and you know, save some money, that's definitely good for us. Uh, TCO, it's a lot of applications or use cases on Amazon. Um, cost a certain amount, but there's other, other licensing, et cetera, that, are, that we need to bake into the cost. And consistency of business processes. Um, you know, we are here for the scientists. You know, a cell gene does not exist for IT. What can we do to help our scientists, but we can't, you know, it's not our job to tell them how they should work. They should tell us how they want to work. Uh, best practices, key for us. I mean, this has you know, implications for us on how we do things in AWS. But we definitely want to design for failure. We don't want you know, to lose data. Um, and part of that is separating compute from storage. And that's, that's you know, to IT, that's a very new concept. You know, on-premise, we have file servers, we have Windows file shares and NetApps, and the data is on the server itself. Moving to the cloud, uh, we can now separate that out. Uh, reducing manual effort, of course, and uh, don't DIY file systems. And Prashant was talking about that. We absolutely definitely do that. And by using EFS and some of the other services, we can move applications into the cloud without having to do the refactoring work to make that work. Uh, so EFS, EFS came out, we've been clamoring it forever. Um, and when it came out, when it went in GA, we were completely excited. But we, well, for the first workloads that we started moving, uh, a lot of HPC applications, um, almost every single application that we have doesn't speak block, or doesn't speak object, it wants block storage. And this is perfect for that. It's fast, it has the, all the performance that we need, and it allows us to more, move more and more applications because of the services that provide um, block storage. YEFS, it's simple, it just works. There's really no magic to it, at least from a customer point of view. You go in, you create the file system, you mount it, and wow, it's done. You don't have to do anything. Uh, there's no patching of servers. Um, in some regions where we don't have EFS, we still have to maintain EC2 instances that serve out NFS, and oh my gosh, that's such a pain. Um, and we don't have to re-engineer applications. Like I said, we have 500 apps, and we cannot modify them. Um, and we do love S3. And, not to belabor that, but we put petabytes in S3, but the vast majority of applications do not speak object, and EFS really helps us for those legacy workloads that we have. 
So uh, this is a quick little schematic of one of our applications. Um, previous in historic old days, we'd run this on-premise. Uh, we moved it to the cloud uh, before EFS went GA. Uh, and with those workloads, we had you know, a little NFS server, and it was reasonably it was stable. Um, we didn't particularly want to run our own NFS server, but you know, it's part of the game that we do, so fine. Uh, our other options were um, to run a parallel file system. You know, if you were at reInvent 2013, I think there were a few talks about how to run your own parallel file system across 10 or 20 nodes. We definitely weren't gonna do that. Um, talking to the vendor of this particular software, this software is very, very expensive. It's upper five figures per person or per user per year. And they had a SaaS, app, SaaS offering and we first heard about it, like very excited, let's, let's do that. And then they wanted four times what we were paying already, so that wasn't gonna fly. Uh, so now we switched to EFS, at least for the regions that have it. Works great, we were able to shut down the NFS boxes, save some money, have better performance. And interestingly enough, we doubled performance on the on per node basis by switching to EFS, and we saved a lot more money. And my admins don't have to deal with the problem, and we don't have, you know, oh, the NFS server locked up again, go fix it. Um, now this was a very, very complicated application, probably a little bit more challenging than we originally thought. Uh, so we really want to thank the Amazon HPC team that helped us out. Um, if you are stuck with an application, you know, there's a tip, call your Amazon rep. They will put you in touch with someone that can help you out. <clears throat> another workload that we have, uh, this is, uh, originally we, we bought this from another a company and it was pure cloud native. That's ideally what we want. However, we want to integrate these with old binaries that we have, custom scripts that we ran. So this has now become a semi-legacy, semi, native application. So the pipeline starts up, it's all, it's all object aware, petabytes of data come in, and then as our binaries start kicking on later down the process, we start switching more over to um, block storage. That's where EFS comes in. And we you know, like I said, in the regions where we don't have EFS, we run NFS on the EC2, and well, we have to support that. Um, here's another application that we have here, um, also part uh, cloud-native, part block. Um, we start in, and what the application does is we work, do a lot of collaboration with universities and hospitals. We all share data together um, to create, you know, cures, to find new cures. Um, the data itself comes in often via object, um, and then, you know, universities, they upload their binaries, a lot of entities out there are still not object aware. And they send us their scripts or their binaries or the application that they wrote, and they integrate that with our data uh, in, in order to find uh, new cures for us. <clears throat> uh, this is a circuit view um, of, of how we have uh, our networking, and this has implications to how we access our storage. So you know, even though we have EFS in the cloud, sometimes we need to upload new binaries, um, sometimes we have you know, files on-premise that we want to copy. So we have really, really big direct connects. I think three, as a company, we have four 10 gig direct connects and a 300 meg link. Uh, so we can mount EFS from our network. We don't, op we don't open files, we just primarily one-way copy. Um, and I think I have some of, yeah, how that networking is done there. Um, switching a little bit to hybrid cloud um, using the gateways. So we have a number of sites, like I said, we have 70 sites around the world, and some of those are primarily R&D sites, and at all those R&D sites, we have hundreds, 
hundreds of instruments, and each one of these instruments has a PC generating massive amounts of data. We think between all of our sites, we have about 1,000 instruments and at least over a petabyte of data all around the world. And we really, really wanted to centralize these in S3 buckets. However, of those 1,000 instruments, there are approximately, we think, around 300 unique systems. And we cannot change the application. But we want to take that data, move it to the cloud so we can do additional analytics. So how do we do that? We cannot modify the system. They're all, we even have some, you know, no Windows 95 anymore. Uh, but <laughs> mostly Windows 7 and up now. Uh, we do have some 2000 here and there. But we, you know, how do we get those systems to upload to the cloud? And that's really, really difficult. And that's where the gateway comes in. Uh, we also want to archive data. We have a lot of stale file shares. Projects have finished. There's a server sitting there, but no one really uses that anymore. Let's move it off-premise, off move it to the cloud, cheaper storage. And then also for data migrations. We have a lot of applications that are uh, soon to be in flux or in migration, migrating shortly to the cloud. How do we move that data to the cloud in preparation for the next day when we do a cutover to, to the cloud version? Uh, like I said, we're a cot shop. We have these huge challenges about how do we make these, cloud, these applications in the cloud without having modified them? Um, and like I said, you know, it's really, really hard to change our people and the processes. We don't want to change them. We want them to you know, have a better scientific uh, process. We did try a number of things. We had some ideas over the years uh, to transfer data from these instruments and from our lab systems into the cloud. Uh, one of our first attempts was an S3 client. And we, we picked Cloudberry, Cyberduck. We put them on the instrument. Scientists, here you go. You have now infinite amount of storage of your data. Yeah, that, did, that didn't work. <laughs> Technically, it was fine. Technically, it was, you know, if you're a cloud person, but trying to explain object storage to someone who's been doing you know, science for 20 years is really hard. Most IT people don't even know what object storage is, let alone you know, a layperson. Um, we have another instrument that you know, it was so important. They were taking samples that could not be replaced. You get one sample, and it costs an enormous amount of money. And if they lose the data, it's gone. And last year, so they wanted that backed up. And this was about four years ago. And the only option back then was no backup whatsoever or the corporate platinum grade backup, which is what we do for servers. Right? So that means a utility agent, data is copied to our data domains, it gets sent to our tape backup system, those are sent to Iron Mountain. And for the quantity of data that they had, we had to give them a quote for $25,000 for one system. And they said yes, because um, they had to. And, and that's, that's not way, the way I should, IT should be. We should work with them. But at the time, you know, we only had this platinum grade solution. And it's not an unfair cost. If you see what IT had to do to give that option, it's 25,000 was a fair price. But from their point of view, that wasn't acceptable. Uh, and they had three more of these instruments. And we did the same thing with those as well. Uh, so that's where um, you know, when the file gateway and storage gateway came out, we were really, really excited that we could deploy a much cheaper price point for archive for these application instruments, have the, the files accessible to other applications, Athena, EMR, and is at a much cheaper price point. Uh, so this is multiple workloads on one slide, so bear with me. Um, so on the left-hand side, you see what we, you know, the lab, the wet experiments. Scientists generate data with the laboratory instrumentation, take pictures or whatever the instrument does. 
the PC takes the data, does some initial processing, sometimes all the processing, and either uses the file gateway, directly drops it off into the bucket, and the instrument PC doesn't need to know what the cloud is. It doesn't have to have uh, an S3 client. All it knows is there's an NFS share, share there, put it there, and boom, it goes in the cloud. Uh, we also have additional on-premise servers that for, you know, for various reasons we don't want to modify. It's just the way it is. So they can write directly to uh, EFS by mounting it over our Direct Connect. And then we also have a number of 3D rendering systems. So if you guys remember uh, Minority Report with Tom Cruise, you know, he's on stage waving his hand or all those images flying by. And we don't look like Tom Cruise, but we have rooms that do something similar. So all the scientists put their goggles on, they go into this room, and they start diving into molecules to see how our compounds interact with cells or how proteins are folding to interact. And that system is on-premise, requires a lot of power, but our data is crunched in the cloud. So we can use a file gateway to transfer data back and forth without modifying either system. <clears throat> um, this is of another networking viewpoint, uh, or how we do the networking to the cloud, but without the circuit view. This is more of a uh, cloud view of how it's done. So on the left-hand side, we have a number of data centers around the world. Um, so I simplified it to just two, but we really have a lot more than that. Uh, we have a bunch of subnets now. You know, lab compute some network, research compute network, uh, server subnet, uh, user subnet, and the different subnets have different connectivity options into the cloud. They go to our routers, and then uh, we, you know, we have a public interface on a direct connect, and instead of using our normal internet connection, we can use send that traffic up our direct connect uh, and access S3. Uh, EFS traffic can now route over our direct connect on our VPC. Our EC2 clients can uh, mount EFS without any modification. That's, I cannot stress how much we love uh, EFS. You just mount the darn thing and it works. Um, so in summary, like I said, EFS is super simple. It's easy, you mount it and it works. It's scalable. In the old days, you know, our scientists say, I need more storage. Please add more storage. Or the NFS server crash, please restart. We don't have any of that problems anymore. And storage gateway enables us to access a lot of the file services in the cloud without modifying the existing systems that we have. So I want to thank the Amazon storage team, my, my account team, uh, the Celgene HPC, and as, as well as the Amazon HPC team. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's uh, a long, a lot of use cases there in a very short period of time. So um, you can breathe now. Um, just wanted to remind people that um, there are more sessions around storage, so if this wasn't enough or you'd like a, to uh, look at a little more, there's a deep dive um, on EFS tomorrow, um, and we have another session tomorrow around migrating large data sets into the cloud. We've had some sessions earlier in the week that will be available on YouTube um, after the event, um, so catch those if, if those are of interest to you. And just a reminder that all of these sessions, if you're going for AWS certification, can be used um, for your certification. And um, thank you for attending, and we'll take questions. Hey, Paul. My name is Dennis Kutschreiber, and I'm actually up the street from you, Novartis. So right on Main Street. So as you know, we're uh, actually heavy consumers of data and generators of data in general. I think we have about 40, 45 petabytes of data that, that lives mostly in Iceland today. Uh, we are in the cloud. Um, trying to consume more elastic file storage. So uh, we have a multi-account strategy with over 200 accounts that are managed centrally. So a couple of questions around, cap uh, around capabilities for EFS. So the first is SIFS and SMB support with uh, Kerberos authentication. Is that on your roadmap? 
Yeah, so um, support, so today EFS actually uh, exports file storage over the NFS version 4 and 4.1 protocols um, and primarily targets uh, Linux EC2 instances being able to access EFS. Um, support for Windows clients to be able to access EFS file systems is something that we have heard a lot from customers about as being an important thing. Um, and we are certainly considering uh, that along with all of the other feature requests as part of our roadmap. Um, but I'm not able to comment on the specific uh, roadmap item. Okay, so that's the first question. Sorry, I'm just going to make these really quick. So sure. uh, global DNS uh, resolution namespace, that would be really useful if we can take the, uh, so EFS DNS namespace is now global. So from a multi-account perspective, we would like to mount these EFS targets across hundreds of different EC2 instances spread across entire like world, literally in like basically regions and uh, EC2 instances. That would be really useful. Yeah, so um, today uh, EFS file systems are accessible within a given region. Um, and then uh, the, the request that you are uh, uh, you know, specifically pointing to is a very interesting one. We'll definitely take that into account. Um, I, I think what that uh, involves is basically um, uh, you know, being able to access, just to clarify what you're asking, you want to be able to access EFS file systems from across multiple VPCs or even multiple accounts and across regions. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So have the ability to um, resolve that namespace globally yeah. from any VPC, from any account, just like for other public uh, AWS services like Dynamo or, or RDS even, or uh, S3. Yeah, we'll definitely plus one that request. Okay, two more, quickly. <laughs> sure. <laughs> EFS automated snapshots, so that's, you know, most of the NFS um, type file systems like NetApp support that. Is, there, is this on your roadmap, <coughs> snapshots? Yes, so um, today we actually provide you uh, a way to backup your file systems. Uh, we actually provide uh, uh, you know, quick start guides to do backups, uh, as well as you can use the recently launched EFS file sync to uh, run regular backups. But if you're interested in um, you know, getting a point in time snapshot as opposed to uh, copying files across as a backup, um, that is something that we are again hearing from customers a lot about. And so um, definitely we'll plus one that request as well, yes. Uh, is there an easy way to do the archiving do the archiving policy from the EFS to uh, like Glacier? Um, yeah, so we we do see some customers actually um, uh, use EFS in a way that they use EFS for uh, a certain uh, genre of data that they store, and then they actually offload that data onto um, S3 and then even use lifecycle policies beyond that to offload it to um, S3IA and Glacier and so on. Um, that, that is uh, a common use case today, but to do so, customers have been using their own tooling and scripting to actually offload the data from EFS to S3. Lance, uh, sorry. This I don't recall you talking about doing that. Do you have, do you have a way that you do that? Um, what was the question? Yeah. Archiving data out of EFS into, say, Glacier um, for longer term Actually, retention. yeah, no, what we're doing there is uh, when we do that, uh, we just um, uh, use a CLI and some scripts on the local EC2 and then just copy that to S3. More questions? Hey, is, is there any way that you can be uh, sort of combine EFS with um, uh, storage gateway, so you can kind of get the cost benefits of using S3, but also remove the reliance to, of your on-prem infrastructure by having a VM running on-prem um, with the storage gateway software installed. 
So let me clarify. You, you're looking for sort of on-prem access to EFS or sort of via a cache model? Uh, no. So um, with Storage Gateway, you have to have a VM running on-prem, right? Yep. So if you can instead have that running within your VPC using EFS, sure. caching a set of files, 100 gigs or so, um, within that storage gateway and shipping the rest off into S3. Right, so we have a number of customers that do that today and actually we provide, as part of the create gateway process, you can select uh, Amazon EC2 as your host, spin up a storage gateway in cloud that is exposing your S3 buckets to your file-based applications. Different use case, obviously, there to EFS. You've got a single EC2 instance that's giving you access to that NFS file system, um, but your backend storage is S3. So if your dominant use is to have the data as objects stored in S3 because the majority of your applications are object-based, then we can give you that file-based access through the in-cloud gateway. And I would say if your dominant use is file-based, EFS is the right solution to be using there just because of the, uh, a lot of the benefits that Price uh, mentioned. Especially but, if you're sharing it across multiple Yeah, multiple VPCs, instances. multiple instances. Um, but yes, you can, you can run File Gateway in cloud today. Um, hi, I have a couple of questions. One is for your file gateway. Do you have uh, locking for file locking when you have are having concurrent writes from different sites, um, or how is it handled with um, storage gateway? That's one. And then second, you mentioned that you have snapshot capability for the storage gateway. Did I understand that correctly? And is that are those snapshots uh, in in the cloud in the S3 buckets, or is it on on the local machine VM that's running the storage gateway? So two different questions, one about file, one about volume. First question about file, which I've forgotten already, um, is to do with file locking. Um, so what the gateway provides today is a fully POSIX-compliant file system to all clients connected to the same gateway. If you have multiple gateways connected to the same bucket, our recommendation is that only one of them is writing to that bucket. So we provide the ability for second, secondary gateways to export the share as read-only. Um, again, we're sort of trying to provide a, file, a fully POSIX-compliant file system on top of an eventually consistent object store. So multiple writers can be a problem, as with any multiple writer situation direct to S3. Um, for snapshots on volume gateway, the snapshots that you take of the volumes are EBS snapshots, so you can use them within EBS, and the snap is taken in cloud. Now, we manage the fact that data may be in flight at the time you request the snapshot. So the snapshot that you get is the view of the volume from the application's perspective at the time you request it. So if there's data in flight that hasn't made it from the gateway into the cloud and been persisted, we take care of making sure that data is included in the snapshot. So you sort of get the snapshot you would expect from a traditional file system, and we manage the fact that we're doing asynchronous uploads and moving data around under the covers. We actually covered that, again, just an infomercial. We covered that in our deep dive yesterday. So if you watch the YouTube, you'll see a fairly detailed description of how snapshotting on volume gateway works. So can you speak to any of the, like, the differences between um, storage gateway and some of the hardware solutions that partners make, like Avere and that kind of thing? What's, is there an advantage? to using one of those partner solutions, or does Storage Gateway do everything I need? Um, this is AWS. We have a lot of partners that provide a lot of solutions, and there are benefits, pros and cons of each, right? Um, for Storage Gateway, one of the things that we um, wanted, one of the things we wanted to address for customers is this idea of native object access. Um, and so we 
Um, we do this one-to-one -one mapping of files to objects. We don't do encryption. We don't do duplication. We want to enable native storage in S3. Many of our vendors that have a whole host of additional capabilities or other capabilities don't give you that native access to your data in S3. You go through their solution to get access to it even once you're in cloud. And we felt like there was a need, and we heard from customers that there was a need for this native object access. I just want to use the gateway to get my data in there, and then I have a scalable storage infrastructure in S3. Why I don't want to build another storage fabric to get at it. So you know, all, all solutions come, and again, it's going to depend on your specific use case, whether storage gateway or a vendor solution would be better for you. We're more than happy to talk offline about um, your specifics. So uh, one of the reasons for us uh, to be hesitate to use the EFS is that it uh, seems like uh, the support region is uh, really limited comparing with uh, many other the AWS service, like EBS, and uh, is that uh, any reason? So it's only supporting the limit region. Is there any plan to extend the support to uh, most re uh, regions? Sure. So um, today, Amazon EFS is available in uh, six regions globally, and um, we definitely are uh, uh, looking to expand globally uh, to all regions. Um, and you know, again, uh, we are actively working on our roadmap, um, but I cannot share details of the roadmap, unfortunately, today. I was wondering, are you using STMS at all at your facility? Uh, Celgene? Uh, what for, was that question? What was STMS? If, yeah, if you're using STMS and are you linking it to the storage like table? Scientific management? Yeah, okay. data management. Um, yes, we have uh, on-premise limbs and um, uh, electronic lab notebooks, and that captures the high-level view of the scientific data. However, that does not ca capture the bulk data, and that's what we're missing, and that's what we're looking to do the, the gateways for. Any more questions? Actually, just looking at the clock here, I see we're, um, we're out of time. More than happy to take questions in the hallway. Um, don't want to delay the following session. Um, thanks all for coming. Um, and as I say, we'll make ourselves available for questions offline. Thank you.